0: Hello, ninjas and ninjets, and welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name is Tim Cameron Kitchen, best-selling digital marketing author and head ninja at Exposure Ninja, which is a digital marketing company in the UK. In this episode, I'm joined by Diane Gardner. Now, Diane is an accountant, but that's not what she calls herself. She calls herself a tax coach. She's not really here to talk about tax at all. What she's here to talk about is how she's positioned herself and how she's changed the angle of her business to focus on tax rather than just general accountancy. Now. In the interview, we'll hear how this has caused all sorts of challenges along the way from having to fire her entire staff to having to change that entire angle and focus of the business. And obviously, as a business owner, that was a very stressful thing for her to do as well. So she talks about her experience here why she decided to do it and what's happened to the business since she decided to do that. And we'll also discuss how listeners, if you're thinking of changing the angle of your business or focusing in one specific area, how you might go about identifying which area to talk about. Diane, just like me, is is also an author of books and she's used books to grow her business and and grow her positioning. So we talk about that as well. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. It's a chance to hear from someone who, who is in a business that maybe isn't quite known for, you know, big bombastic marketing, but actually she's done a really good job of positioning herself and her interviews and podcasts and all of that sort of thing have really shown how she's used this tax coach angle and this tax coach hook to make herself a bit of a a celebrity around this topic. So enjoy the episode with Diane Gardner. Welcome to the show, Diane.
1: Thank you so much for having me on this program today, Tim. I'm looking forward to it.
0: So, and the reason why I wanted to bring you on is that you're a tax coach. Right. And, and by calling yourself a tax coach, you position yourself a mile away from the other CPAs and accountants. So perhaps firstly, you could explain a bit about what a tax coach is and then maybe also explain why you decided to call yourself a tax coach rather than something more traditional.
1: Well, a tax coach is a very unique position in that I get to coach people to a lower tax liability. So I get to sit down with them. We take a look at their last couple of years tax returns, maybe their current financial statements. I'm able to usually spot places where they're overpaying their taxes, uh, mainly because they didn't realize they could do something different. And then we put together a plan, help them implement it, and they get to reap the tax savings year after year after year after year. So in the sum all that up, I guess I get to be a tax superhero. (laughs)
0: Love it, love it. So what? why did you decide to become a superhero rather than just another accountant, right? Because it seems to me like an accountant is something that pretty much every business needs. So just being another good accountant in your location would surely be enough. So why the need for this kind of different positioning?
1: Well, Tim, I'm going to let you in a little bit on some of my backstory. Um, some of your listeners may or may not have heard it on a couple other podcasts, but back in... 2007, everything was going strong. The economy was fairly strong here in the US. Pretty much clients were coming in the door. You know, we would help whoever, our business was growing, things were good. And I went, I reached out and I bought a commercial building instead of renting for our office. And we moved into it and life was hunky-dory doing good. And then 2008 came around the corner. In 2008, we all know we had the big market crash And my clientele, many of them were in the construction industry or in industries that were related to construction, which all of those were directly related to the real estate market. And when that market crashed, they crashed with it. Now, some of them held on for a year or two. Others were gone right away. Well, as each of those businesses were going out of business, They all needed help. They needed me to wrap up the final financial statements, the final payroll and sales tax returns, the final income tax returns. And when we did all that, most of them then had no money and I didn't get paid. So I was sitting here with a very high bunch of receivables on the books. um, had a good sales year, but I couldn't collect it. And at that point, I was wondering, what in the world am I going to do? I've just signed my name on a 20-year bank loan on this commercial office building. And my clients are dying on the vine. I don't want to lay off my staff. What am I going to do? I have got to do something different and went through some very agonizing months of trying to figure out what to do different. I'm an accountant. I don't know how to do other stuff. I know how to do accounting related stuff and just agonized over it. And finally, I saw a guerrilla marketing class that the local college was offering. And so I popped in and took it. It was like a six evening sessions or something and took it. And I go, wow, as an accountant, I've never had to market. So I didn't really know anything about marketing. And so that was kind of an eye opener class. And so I got to thinking some more and thought, well, I guess we're going to have to make some major changes to make ourselves different than all the other accountants in our local area. Because at that time I was still thinking only locally so that those companies who are still doing well in business might choose us over somebody else. And that began my journey on how do I stand apart, which is the name of one of the books that I would co-author on. How do I stand apart from the millions of other accountants across the, the country? And how do I reinvent myself? Because I was a very typical accountant. Most of us are pretty quiet, tend to be a little introverted, shy, love to sit in the background crunch numbers, make you guys look good, but we don't like being in the spotlight. And I had to learn how to do that. So then that put me through the next couple of years of of learning how to do this stuff that that you guys all just call marketing and you have fun with it. So I had to learn how to write a book. I had to learn how to speak in public. That was terrifying. I had to learn how to do things like the podcast interviews. I had to learn how to do a, a webinar. I had to learn how to do all these things and as a result of it we have completely repositioned our company i am no longer a traditional accountant yes we still do traditional accounting services in here but i am now known as a tax coach i'm now now known as a tax superhero and it completely changes the game because now we work nationwide and so we get to help business owners and successful entrepreneurs all across the us and Instead of delivering the bad news of, Tim, guess what? I just finished your tax return and you owe $35,000 in tax. I get to say, Tim, guess what? As a result of our tax planning and the implementation of your tax plan, you saved $35,000. And it's a completely different game now that I get to be the bearer of great news instead of bad news. (laughs)
0: I'll tell you what, if you told me that I only owe $35,000 in tax, I'd be very, very happy. Anyway, (laughs) Anyway, right. Okay. I want to ask you about how you develop that positioning um, in just a minute. But before that, you mentioned that you originally you were the kind of typical quiet, retiring, preferred to sit in the background kind of person. And and I think for a lot of our listeners, that's really going to resonate because that's how they are now. And, And the thought of writing books and standing on stages and all of this stuff is a bit of a... Oh, you know, I'd, I'd really rather not do that. Can I just send some emails or something instead? Was that a tricky decision to make? How did you force yourself? How did you push yourself to do that?
1: I have a couple business coaches who have pushed me so far out of my comfort zone that I've I've, I've always said, I don't even know where my comfort zone is anymore because they have really encouraged me and pushed me to take the next step, whatever that next step was. So my first next step was, writing a chapter in a co-authored book, which was the book that I did um, with Dan Kennedy. I had to contribute one chapter and I thought, okay, I can make that commitment. I can learn how to do one chapter. So I wrote my chapter, I turned it in, received an editor's award on it for being one of the best chapters in their book. And I went, okay, that wasn't too painful. Okay, now I can do something else. So then I did another co-authored book, which was called, Why Didn't My CPA Tell Me That? And so had a chapter in that book and went, OK, now I have best-selling author status from both of those books. And so that gave me a little bit more bravery, if you want to call it. And so at a mastermind meeting, we were being challenged to write a book in 60 days. And I don't know how, but my hand went up accepting that challenge. I, I don't to this day, I don't know how, how I got brave enough to raise my hand and say I would do that. <laughs> But I, I did. And then I thought, oh, no, what am I going to do now? I'm on the hook. The whole mastermind group will be holding me accountable to make sure that happened. So I sat down with my coach again. It's like, OK, how do I make this happen? What's the best way to eat this elephant? I've never written a full book before. How do I make this happen? And so we laid out 15 topics of areas that I get asked questions on constantly in the business. And those became the chapters. And then I committed to writing a chapter a week for him. No, I was more like two chapters a week to get it all done in the 60 days. So anyhow, I sat down and I was committed to writing every evening for an hour. And then I was writing on Saturdays because my schedule was pretty full. I didn't have a lot of extra time. And so I started turning in my chapters just to my business coach and he would do a little bit of critiquing or whatever. And before long, I had all those chapters written. And then I was able to pass it off to an editor and she did a little bit of editing and stuff for it. And then we passed it off to the formatter who got it all formatted so we could go out on Amazon's Create Space. And then we had my book called Stop Overpaying Your Taxes, 11 Ways Entrepreneurs Overpay and How to Stop It Now. So then that book was born and I made it barely by the skin of my teeth in my 60 days, but we got it done. And I went, OK, if I can do that, then I can do whatever that next step was. So in that my case, the next step was I now had to learn how to stand up and talk in front of people. Talk about terrifying. That was way worse than writing a book because that does not come natural for me. Just about make myself sick the first several times I had to do that. But I had to do it. And the coaches were pushing on me again. You have to do this. This is the next step. You got a book out there. Now you got to be willing to talk about it. And so that began my journey into the speaking world. Now, I'm not I'm you know i not a big speaker or anything like that, but I have done several seminars and I've been interviewed a ton of times. And I do prefer the podcast interviews over the live speaking because I'm only just talking to just you and not everybody else <laughs> is listening to this <laughs> where when I have to stand up in front of a room, I still get myself pretty shook up if I let myself get there. And I just have to remind me my own self that I know more about my topic than anybody else sitting in this room, and I have to just accept that and go forward, and stand up and deliver whatever it is I'm there to deliver.
0: That's a really good point. I think as long as you know your stuff inside out, then that can give you a bit of confidence that you can add some value to the people there. It's really amazing to hear how you kind of how you progress from writing the book—a pretty similar story to my own, where I first started by writing a book and then grew a company and end up doing seminars and stuff like that. And it's amazing how you just put one foot in front of the other, then you just keep going. You start with something that's nice and easy and feels a, a little, well, maybe feels a little bit uncomfortable, but you just keep pushing that boundary a little bit. And then before you know it, you're, you're okay. And you're happy talking in front of a room of people and, and whatever. It's, it's, it's awesome.
1: And now 10 years later, we've outgrown that building that we bought back in 2007 and we're getting ready to make a move into a building twice the size of our current building.
0: Amazing. Amazing. That's awesome. Great. I wanted to go back to when you decided to be the tax coach. So how did you decide on that particular positioning?
1: Well, I had been seeing some ads in some accounting periodicals that I, that I um, read on a regular basis. And it sounded very intriguing about identifying a niche and making yourself stand out from all the other accountants. And I kind of watched their stuff for about a year. Finally, I got brave enough to watch the introductory webinar. Then I got brave enough to join their group. And then I kind of sat back and watched again for about another year because I was working on all that other stuff in the meantime and just kind of wanted to see, is this true? Is this legitimate? Are they really doing it legally? I didn't want to get involved in something that wasn't legal, that type of thing. And so I listened and I watched and I paid attention to their training meetings and webinars and attended a couple of their live events and things like that. And went, this is so cool because all they're doing is picking out places in the tax code that most people are not aware of and making sure that you're utilizing those in your business, which means you get to reap tax savings. After being a part of that group and getting my confidence up and realizing that there are a bunch of people out there in the US that are overpaying their taxes, why shouldn't I be the one to share the good news with them and help them save that money and put it back in their own pocket, back in their business, whatever it might be, instead of giving it to the government?
0: So for those who are listening, whether they're an accountant or whether they're some other type of 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 service business who serves a quite a general they offer a general service. How would you suggest that they start Looking at what they do in order to find their kind of tax coach positioning, if you like,
1: I would say find something in all the services that you offer that lights you up, gets you excited, makes you feel energized, or whatever. Pick that one or two items and see if there's some way that you can make yourself stand out and be known for those. For me, I hated being the bearer of bad news to my clients. I just almost would make myself sick over having to make the phone call to tell that person that they owed X amount of dollars in tax because I knew they were going to be angry and they were going to blame me. It was always my fault that they owed the tax instead of, you know, taking responsibility for it themselves. It was my fault. And I hated those phone calls. And that was a part about being a tax preparer that I really, really did not like. I don't mind doing the work. I don't mind. yeah, you know, I love the client interaction and stuff. But when I was looking at it, I took the spin on it. Well, what if I could take the part I do like, which is the client interaction, preparing their tax returns and and then take that next positive step and give them a better positive outcome. So looking at your own services and, and or even products and stuff that, that you're currently working on, is there something that you can do like that that you really love and that you really enjoy in the business and turn that into a niche? Because anytime that you're working in a niche market, you will actually make a lot more money. You'll you won't work nearly as hard as you are trying to be everything to everybody, and you'll enjoy it a whole lot more.
0: You know the, the the main objection that people have to to that kind of thing is, well, my business is still small at the moment, so I need to take a broad range of work across across lots of different things, and if I focus too heavily, then I'm going to be excluding excluding stuff which I really really need to grow. So, did you ever have that argument going on in your head, like? But was it ever scary for you to to turn down other work and focus purely on the tax side of things?
1: It was terrifying because prior to this, if you had a pulse and you contacted me and wanted me to be your accountant, we would say yes. And now <laughs> there's an application process, and now there's a deposit up front, and now we've you know, we've put these little roadblocks out there that for somebody to work with me, they basically pre-qualify themselves because they they've had to. Almost jumped through a few hoops to be able to work with me. So you change your positioning, which is scary as can be. Change your positioning from from my net is big. I'll take anybody and everybody to I'll only take a select few. Do you qualify to work with me? And that was terrifying to do. But my coach kept saying, you need to do it. It will work. Just trust me. It will work. And so I said, "Okay, I trust. And it has worked um, magnificently for us.
0: That's really interesting. That not only are you niching, but you're also putting up these roadblocks and pre-qualifiers in the way as well. So, take a, a you know, I can I can completely understand how that would be scary. So, let's say that somebody wants to work with you. What's the process that they have to go through, and what are the roadblocks they have to to get over in order to to even you know even to talk to you in the first place?
1: Right now, they need to send in their last two years' income tax returns for their personal and or business returns. Then we take a look at them, and then my admin team will set up a a 30 minute phone call with them. At that point, we will talk about what it is I see if I can see some significant tax savings for them. I'll let them know. I don't give details. This is, this is basically just a kind of a get to know you call. Here's what I think I'm seeing. And then we decide if we want to go further, if we do want to work with them and continue to go down the road with them, then we develop a, a actual tax plan that they pay for up front. So I, you know, I've just kind of learned the lesson that it's all in positioning. And once we develop this plan, then we meet with them a second time and we go through every aspect of the plan. We determine who's going to implement which pieces. And sometimes it's done in a couple of phases. Then we get to work and then we have a couple more follow-up meetings to make sure everything's staying in place and, you know, can hold their hand if they need help or they can go off and do it with themselves or their current accountant or whatever. So we have a multi-step process to be able to work with me and it's working really well. We've been able to save over a million and a half dollars for our clients in the last couple of years.
0: And do you put that down to... The pre qualification, obviously, when you're having a look to see if there are significant enough savings, obviously, that's allowing you to take on the clients that you know that you're going to have the biggest impact for, right?
1: Correct. Yes. And I do give everybody that 30 minute phone call after looking at their tax returns. You know, don't see your know, significant savings. I'll tell them and maybe give them a couple pointers here or there, what, you know, something they can do. But I will only take the people that I can make a significant difference in their lives.
0: Are you worried at all by the pre-qualification that your that your team does? Are you worried that that's going to filter out some potentially good clients who don't have the time or who just want to talk to you? Was there ever a, a scary point there where you said, okay, fine, I'm just going to let the team talk to them first and I'm just going to deal with the consequences? And, and how did you get over that? And, and how did you find that impact of your lead flow?
1: It was very scary because I <laughs> tend to be, Um, As an accountant, you know, we're kind of known to be perfectionists. (laughs) And I wanted to be the person who took all the calls and who looked at everything and did all this stuff up front. And I was just running myself ragged between the workload that I'm carrying in the office, the regular clients, the running of my business, the screening of new people. I was just a mess. I was spending too much time doing everything. And so we made a list of a bunch of things that could be delegated. And that initial screening, whether it's a new prospective client, whether it's a new prospective hire from my own office, that type of stuff has now been delegated off to my admin team. And I have to have faith that I've trained them well enough, that they know what they're doing, and that I can trust their decisions. And if something falls through the cracks, I have to be okay with it. because I know that they can never ever do it to my hundred percent standards, but if they can do it to 85 or ninety percent, I have to be good enough with that and not worry about, you know, what maybe, maybe have fallen through the cracks because I was stressing myself out with just too many irons in the fire, too many plates in the air, whatever you want to call it. And it was not working when I was doing it my way.
0: I guess that's the thing, isn't it? If, if you can have two people who do it 85% as well as you and you can increase the volume, it's still getting more clients than if you're trying to handle everyone and doing it 100%, right?
1: Right. Because I was becoming the bottleneck. Because I didn't have time to get to it. Things weren't getting done quickly. Everybody was unhappy with me. And so we finally had to say, okay, these things have to give. And it's so hard not to pick them back up and take them back again. When I see it, it's like, oh, but I could have done. No, you have to let it go. And I have to be good enough with that. And it's really, it's a hard battle that I fight um, almost daily.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I think it's the the biggest well, for me, it feels like the biggest challenge that any business owner faces as they grow their company is to start letting go of things. And But once you realize that, in, in my case, I've found that actually people are significantly better at doing stuff than I am anyway. So actually, once you start giving them that trust and you see that it works, then you're kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Well, I'm just going to give away pretty much everything. And I'm just going to sit here and do the one thing that I'm really good at and let everyone else get on with their stuff. So.
1: Yeah. And I need to get to that point that that's all I'm doing is the one or two things that I really excel at. I still have a lot on my plate, but over time as we get you know, more team hired and stuff, my plate will hopefully thin down to where I'm down to just those couple of things that I do well. They can handle the rest of it. And that's having faith in your team and spending enough training time and effort on your team. So that you can feel comfortable letting them have it.
0: Very true, very true. So you mentioned earlier on your your first book that you'd written. You actually, you've used quite a you've written quite a number of books, haven't you and been featured in quite a number of books. How have you used your books to alter your position in the market, and, and how what sort of advantage do you feel they give you over competitors?
1: Oh, I love that question. Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit before that. When I first did these books, my husband looked at me. He goes, "Wow, you got all these books. You're going to sell? This is really cool." And I looked at him and I went, "Honey, um, I give away more books than I ever will sell." And he went, "Yeah." Why would you do that? And so, with my books, yeah, we do sell a few here and there, but they are a positioning tool. And because I have the books, when I walk into a seminar and we set up the table and we lay out all the books on there, it it stakes the claim that you are an authority and you are a little bit of a celebrity because you do have all these books. It changes the whole atmosphere in the room instead of, she's somebody I've never heard of before. I think I'm gonna check my email on my phone to she's somebody I maybe haven't heard of before, but wow, it looks like she knows her stuff. I better pay attention. And it's amazing what that does positioning wise for you. Or even when I meet somebody for the first time, whether it's in person or virtually, and if they've been out to my website and they see all the books and all the interviews and stuff, uh, it changes that perception in how you, you approach the, the upcoming meeting or the upcoming engagement. So I haven't sold a whole lot of my books, but I have given away hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. They pay back. By new clients, by opening doors that I couldn't open previously, you walk in with a book, or somebody else gives them one of my books, and all of a sudden that door opens effortlessly. Now, where before I couldn't budget, so the books have been a great asset.
0: It's funny, isn't it? People assume, and particularly, you know, I talk to, say, my grandparents or something, and they they know that I've, I've got books, and that company has books, and and the assumption is that. A best-selling book means that you get money from, you know, royalties or whatever, and you get a bit of money from Amazon. But the the money on the front end is so insignificant, isn't it? Whereas the money on the back end from the leads is, is millions. So you've also been in a book with my ultimate hero, Dan Kennedy, who for me is he is God with a big G. How on earth did you do that? And how can listeners replicate that sort of thing, if at all possible?
1: Well, I was, this was back in my trying to figure out what my niche could be days and trying to figure out how to market days. I was listening to a webinar about why you should write a book. And the, the person putting on the, le- the webinar was just talking about how you can do it in baby steps by becoming a part of a co-authored book. And at that time, I didn't know Dan Kennedy was going to be part of it. And so I decided to go ahead and, and take the leap. And jumped into their book, agreed to pay the upfront money and that type of thing. Later on, when they when they actually showed the cover, is when I saw Dan Kennedy's face. It's like I didn't even know he was going to be on that book, so I went for. Oh. <laughs> so I was pretty happy with that because uh, there have been many opportunities to do co-authored books over the years, and I've done some just because they're for a worthy cause or whatever. But that one has been good, just mainly because uh, his face is on the front of that book, and that he endorsed it.
0: So, you you pick up leads from from that, obviously, because Dan's audience would would read anything that that he's featured in. What are the what are the ways that you use to drive leads from a book like that into into your world, and and so that you can capture them and sell them all sorts of stuff?
1: Generally, it's because they're they're wanting to know a little bit more about what in the world is a tax coach? You know, how do I've never heard of that before. And so once we get that conversation rolling, then we're able to, you know, to move it along the lines. Well, mostly move it along the lines where I want it to go. Other times i will just, you know, I'll realize that this person isn't going to be a good prospect. And so then we'll just chat a little bit about whatever they're wanting to chat about. But generally I can turn the conversation into Discovering whether they're overpaying their taxes or not, pretty easily by anybody who sees me. Whether they come from that angle or whether they come from um, another angle with one of the other books.
0: Are you you generating many leads from the internet as well, or is it mostly offline and and the seminars and the books? Then
1: I'm getting a lot of leads from the interviews that I do. People hear me on the interview and they want to work with me, and so that has been a great source of new clientele. We have clients. From Rhode, from Rhode Island all the way to, over to Hawaii it, and many, many states in between. So that's been kind of neat. We've gotten to meet some people virtually that I'm hoping someday I'll actually get to meet in person and have come up with some great uh, leads and some great referrals from them um, as they you know, are pretty happy with all the work that we've been able to provide and the savings we've been able to create for them. So my, my podcast interviews are probably my number one lead source. But I wouldn't get the interviews if I didn't have the books, because until you have your you're, you're a credible source, you're not going to get interviewed. So the books had to come first. And it was very slow getting going and getting to the point where now it's pretty easy to get an interview. I remember we knocked on a ton of doors at the beginning before we got a couple people who would agree to interview me. So in those first few interviews, well, when I go back and listen to them, they were pretty bad because <laughs> <laughs> I was so nervous. <laughs>
0: Oh, yeah. No, it's, it's nerve wracking, isn't it? The first the first time you ever interviewed, I remember sweating profusely.
1: <laughs> oh, I had oh my very first one. I had pages and pages and pages of notes because I was so afraid I'd forget something. And then he didn't ask me anything that I had in my notes. It was so funny. <laughs> <laughs> so.
0: That's awesome. So from where you are now, um, with the books and the interviews and the podcast and the solid positioning, let's go back to when you were first kind of dipping your toe in into the water of niching and, and really specializing and refining your message so that you could stand out. What's the thing that you did, which you really, really wish you had done sooner? Write a book. Hmm.
1: If I would have done that in 2008, you know, when everything was falling apart, it would have, my world would have turned around much sooner. I didn't write my first book for several years after that because I was you know, spent too much time or quite a bit of time trying to figure out how does an accountant market? I did not know how to do that. Now I'm a pretty good marketer, but back then I didn't even know how to do it at all. So that took me quite a while. And then when I started changing the focus in our business, I got a lot of pushback from my uh, current staff back at that time. And so that slowed things down because I had to convince them or try to convince them that this new direction we were heading was a good thing. They saw me just spending all this money on writing books, attending conferences, webinars, every training class I could get my hand on. I don't know how many of Dan Kennedy's I bought. I was desperate. I had to do something. And they saw me spending money when there wasn't money to be spent. And eventually I ended up completely cleaning house. And the new crew that came in, came into an office that does tax planning. And this is what we primarily do. And so they didn't know any different. And so, of course, they buy into my vision a lot faster than that other group who kind of dug in their heels and said, this is not comfortable for us. We just want to do bookkeeping and payroll, and we don't want you to do anything any different. So it was a rough go there for a few years.
0: That's fascinating that you were able to switch your angle, but the staff had a bit of inertia and they weren't able to to see the vision for, for for the new business. Was it, did, did you make a conscious decision that, right, these guys have got to go and I've got to get a new team in who buy into this vision? Or was it a gradual kind of tapering off as they became uncomfortable with, with the new direction?
1: It was gradual. I had one, I'm going to call her the ringleader, staff member, who developed this very negative attitude about these changes I was making and the money I was spending to get us to make this happen. And she became very vocal about all the stuff I was doing. And in her mind, I was doing it all wrong because, you know, she knew so much so much and I should have just, you know, kept doing what we were doing Well, we were dying, had to do something. And so then she was talking to another coworker. And pretty soon I had that one saying, you know, basically there was nothing I could do that was right. And so I let the first one go. Then I had a couple months later, I had to let the next one go. And by that time it had spread to a third person and then a, Several months later, I had to let that person go and then finally had to let another one go. So it was really painful as I was letting people go, trying to hire new people, get them trained, keep my current clients happy and not not let them feel like, oh, what's going on? They're falling apart over there. It was very, very painful. And I had a pretty good smoke and mirrors thing going on for about two years so that my current clients wouldn't even feel or to the best of my ability. Wouldn't feel what was going on. I didn't want them all jumping ship. It was it was pretty stressful.
0: Yeah, that was, uh I think it's the hardest thing to do, isn't it, to to let people go. It's. Um,
1: it was gut wrenching,
0: especially when you're going through a transition like that as well, and and there's there's changes that you have to make. So, yeah, massive respect for that. Um, Diane, it's been absolutely fascinating to to hear your story and 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 to hear your positioning, and I, I think. I'd really encourage people to have a look at how you've positioned yourself, whether or not they're in the market for your for your services. Go and have a look at how Diane has has branded herself and positioned herself, because I think it's a really good example of, of how service companies can do this. Where can people find out a bit more about you, Diane, and, and check out your services?
1: The best place to go is out to my website, which is www.taxcoachforyou.com. We use the number four. So, Tax Coach, the number four, you.com. And out there, they can see how somebody who was this boring, plain vanilla, uh, timid accountant uh, now is rocking the world in the tax world and tax savings and that type of thing. And um, they can download some free resources. We have free books that we give away. We just ask they pay shipping and handling on it so we can get them in the mail to you. Uh, we offer that free tax analysis I mentioned. So, you know, I'm a big believer in giving up front and then and, and trying to educate people that, you know, we all need to pay our fair share of taxes, but there's no reason to give the IRS a big tip.
0: <laughs> this is true. And I'm also a big fan of asking people to pay shipping for the free book. It's a really good pre-qualifier and also starts to offset some of the cost, hopefully self-liquidating the lead gen. <laughs>
1: Working on that part, yes. <laughs>
0: Anyway, thank you so much for joining us, Diane. And thank you everyone for tuning in.
1: Thanks, Tim.